Welcome to a new week of Studio Two. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. How you feeling today, Avi? You all right? Feeling fine. A little cold, a little yeah. head cold action. Other than that, I'm locked in. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Well, thank you to everybody who came out to the public media mingle here at WHYY last week. It was a wonderful event. And We here at Studio Two got to tape our very first conversation in front of a live audience. So thank you to everyone who was there and that conversation with Catherine Price on The Power of Fun will air today. And we had fun doing it. We had fun. I had true fun. And you'll understand what all of this means (laughs) later later in the show. And but first, we have a much more serious topic. Yeah. At the end of this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the role of harm reduction in Kensington. Last week, we learned that Councilwoman Ketsi Lozada, who represents Kensington in Philadelphia City Council, wants two well-known nonprofits to leave the neighborhood. We're going to ask her why and what she thinks the future of harm reduction is in Kensington. Yeah, tough issue, interesting issue. We want to hear what you think about harm reduction, that is handing out needles, providing support for people in active addiction. You can email us, studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call one 888 and leave a message. We may try to do a larger conversation about this at a later time. Absolutely. Uh, first, a couple headlines to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, is a lawsuit that caught our attention. It's all about dating apps. Mm-hmm. Now, you might know Hinge has a tagline that the app is designed to be deleted. But these plaintiffs in this lawsuit filed in California say that's false advertising, mm. that these apps like Tinder and Hinge are, in fact, designed to draw you in and keep you on the platforms. Mm-hmm. So they have filed a lawsuit. Uh, Cherry, don't know if this lawsuit's going anywhere, Mm -hmm. but of course it speaks to this larger issue of how people are dating these days, and apps are a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, apps, uh, about 40% of couples say they met their partner online. Yeah, we're up to 40%. And according to uh, the Knot.com, dating apps are the most common way that people meet now. Hmm. But, you know, according to this lawsuit, you know, these apps are game of have gamified dating and have caused people sounds to fun. become addicted to swiping. OK, I, I, I've swiped gamified before. Sounds great. I, I, I've swiped before. I did not like it. I didn't, was not addicted. Yeah. Couldn't wait to delete that. More generally, so, as a society, yeah. I think we have to figure out. Yeah. Legally, what are what algorithms this? allowed to do? Because yeah. they're obviously all designed to mm-hmm. get you to use the app or the program or the software or whatever it is. Um, but I do feel like legally we still seem to have some some unanswered questions about, you know, if there there is a line mm-hmm. of sort of sucking you in that these apps are not allowed to cross. Hey, do you have a topic? Uh, sorry, a comment or a question about this? Studio 2 at WHYY.org. Tell us about dating apps. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. And speaking of screens, Mm -hmm. by the way, a Gloucester County School District announced a new policy that will lock students out of their computers late at night. Lock them out. Lock them out. The computers will become inoperative. Okay. Now, the school district is the Deptford County, the Deptford Township School District. Um, They noticed that many students were up past midnight on their school issued computers. They were doing schoolwork sometimes, but other times they were just playing games. So beginning March 1st, those 
School-issued computers will be inoperative after 8 p.m. if you're in elementary school, 9 p.m. for middle schoolers, and after 10 p.m. for high schoolers. The district says that the students, they got to go to sleep. They got to learn time <laughs> management. They can't stay up all night using these computers. Parents, of course, have had very mixed reaction. Avi, what is your reaction? Oh, my reaction? Mm-hmm. Of course, the most important reaction is my reaction. <laughs> um, well, at first I thought, this is reasonable. Obviously, the kids are still going to use screens probably late at night, but the school district doesn't want to contribute to that problem. Okay. Bravo, I suppose. Then, and then I thought, mm-hmm. well, there are certainly going to be students who need this school-issued computer to get their work done. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have any other alternatives and they're running behind on their work or maybe they have obligations during the evening, you know, working in a family business or whatever, and it's 10 o'clock and their homework's not done. Yeah. They're not going to be able to complete their assignment. That seems a little unfair. It I don't does. know. I'm in the middle on this. Yeah. I feel like parents should have an opt out option if, if you know, the kid has. Because I did an all nighter before in high school, you know, waited. Just till one. Last, yeah, you know, <laughs> a few. <laughs> um, and I was a high school athlete, as were you, um, Avi. So, you know, sometimes you got to go to sleep and then wake up early and do your work. So this is up in the air. This is a test case. We'll, you know. I mean, Thanks it's going to be them know that I was a high school athlete. <laughs> you were. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but, you know, this is an issue that's happening in, in Gloucester County and the Deptford Townships. And we're going to talk, yeah. talk more generally, I think, later in the week about this issue of, of young people and, and young screens, because um, it's, it's much broader, of course, than one policy in one school district. Mm-hmm. Transitioning now to a news story that came out last week, a Kensington nonprofit called Savage Sisters told the Inquirer that they were being kicked out of their storefront. And they claim it's not because they're behind on rent or bills, but because Kensington's councilwoman simply wants them gone. Savage Sisters says Councilwoman Ketsi Lozada told their landlord not to renew their lease, and the landlord complied. And Councilwoman Lozada, she's not been shy about her plans to clean up Kensington. She wants tougher police enforcement. And she's skeptical somewhat of groups like Savage Sisters, which works with people suffering from addiction. She's accused them of being, quote, bad neighbors. Councilwoman Lozada joins us now on Studio Two. Welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me this this morning. Thank you. So uh, I first want to ask you, Councilwoman Lozada, is that an accurate description of what happened that you went to the landlord and told the landlord not to renew this nonprofit's lease on Kensington Avenue? That is not accurate. Um, what I did was what every other council person would do when it is brought to your attention, um, like it was brought to mind uh, many times uh, that this uh, particular group um, who was operating out of a storefront um, was a, a nuisance in the community, that they were a problem, and that um, although their services are absolutely necessary, the activity that they were allowing um, in front of and inside of their business was a problem to not just the business community, but to the neighbors, to the residents of that community. Um, and so we reported what we have heard uh, time and time again to the landlord, mm-hmm. um, and we asked them to um, work with their tenant on corrective action. And um, so, you, just to be clear, you didn't say don't renew the lease, but you brought I these concerns to the attention of the landlord. So you did have a conversation Absolutely. there. 
That is correct. I did have a conversation and we brought to their attention the concerns that community residents uh, and community businesses have shared with us. Um, their actions are, are you know, I want to I want to be very clear because um, one thing people will always be able to say about me is that I'm always going to be transparent. Uh, I'm OK with him not renewing their lease. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a that is a decision that as a landlord, he made on his own. Um, we have a responsibility to report and respond to our constituency, and that is exactly uh, what I was doing. And so, uh, Councilwoman, um, I want to jump in here and just talk about and zoom out a bit, um, because I understand that you have taken some issue with some of the harm reduction groups in Kensington and Savage Sisters was on that lead, on that list. What are some of the issues that you're, you're seeing that have made these, these groups, quote, bad neighbors? I think I think that to say that I have a problem with harm reduction groups in general um, is is false, right? Okay. I have a problem with uh, with groups in general who um, who are bad neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Who think that their service, um, where they are providing um, that they are providing to just one constituency, regardless of whether it, it or how it impacts um, the rest of the the community is a problem right we need to be able to provide services in communities like kensington um that will address the the problem of addiction keeping in mind and respecting and and understanding that there is another constituency that needs to live work and play there and so i have a i i what i have said to the savage sisters and what i have said to other groups that i've met with is be conscious, be a good neighbor, talk to those who you are not, who your, your work doesn't focus on mm. and share with them what it is you're doing and how it is you're doing and come to an agreement, right? Part of what I said to Sarah when I met with her, because I did meet with her as well, what part of what I said to her was, go talk to your neighbors, go talk to the businesses, tell them what it is you're doing and how it is that you're doing it. Listen to what it is they are saying is a problem and try to adjust. Go around the corner to the school mm-hmm. um, where children consistently have to come and go um, and, and, and are impacted by the, the, the fact that you're allowing people to God, congregate um, outside Council- of your business. Councilwoman, yeah. What specifically did Savage Sisters do? And you've also levied some accusations against Prevention Point, which is a longstanding organization that's been doing needle exchange and other services in the community since the 90s. What specifically have they allowed that they should not have allowed? They've allowed people to congregate in front of their their space. They've they've, um, not allowed for commercial corridor cleaning to happen. They've allowed from what we hear, right? Because I've not seen it, and I want to be very clear, Mm -hmm. I have not been inside. So I'm not going to say that I know what is happening inside. From the reports that we have heard, they are allowing people to use inside people in prevention. And and they've they've denied that, but you're saying neighbors have come to you and And said said they've witnessed that? We have neighbors, we have ex-employees who have said that. Okay. Um, there are businesses who say they've, um, they've witnessed that. And again, I'm not saying that that is what is happening. I have reported it to them how it has been reported to us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I would have done that to any business. That is what we do with any landlord, any business, um, any, anyone that comes mm-hmm. to us. We're responsible for reporting what we're seeing and, and try, try to bring resolution to it. In an effort to bring a resolution, we ask prevention. I mean, we ask Savage Sisters to go talk to their neighbors and try to make adjustments in how they deliver services. And yeah. they didn't feel it was necessary. And so, you know, 
we felt it was necessary to then move forward and speak to the landlord. And, and I got to ask you this because, um, you know, studies have shown that harm reduction reduces HIV infection rates, reduces overdose deaths, helps people get into treatment. What would an alternative... And we're not challenging that. Yeah, we're and, not challenging so that. So what do you think triage um, should look like if people are good neighbors? What do you think that should look like when you're dealing with and trying to provide services and help to people inactive addiction what do you what do you want it to look like i think we need to be conscious of what is happening in the surround where where we are operating out of right if if you're operating in a commercial quarter space like they are operating right now then they need to be conscious of the hours that they're providing services right they mm. need to make sure that people are not congregating and hanging out and create and, and leaving their trash and feces and urine and all kinds of things um, laying around once the services are provided. They need to be able to say, okay, children come and go um, along this commercial corridor during these specific hours um, uh, in the day. Maybe we need to adjust our time, right? Maybe we need to um, have a conversation with the principal and figure out what is working and what is not. Can I ask you really quickly Um, before we have to let you go, did prevention, did you have these conversations also with Prevention Point? And did they also say, we're not going to adjust how we deliver services? Because they are also part of this conversation. We have about 45 seconds left. They are a part of this conversation. I have asked to meet, um, I did ask to meet with Jose Benitez, who I know is no longer there um, since I arrived here in November. We've not been able to have a conversation um, uh, with anyone at Prevention Point, Um, but I'm willing to have a conversation with them and express my concerns to them as well. Their list of issues as it relates to the to the community goes far beyond what that of Savage Sisters goes. And by the way, Councilwoman, we hope to invite you back, maybe have a broader conversation about this. We appreciate your time. That was Councilwoman Ketsi Lozada, who represents the Kensington area in the city of Philadelphia. We're talking about harm reduction practices in that neighborhood. We appreciate your time and attention today, Councilwoman. And uh, stick with us. Much more to come on Studio 2 from WHYY. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back to Studio 2, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And I just want to thank again the councilwoman for coming on during the last segment. With that, we had time for a short conversation today, and we do plan to do much more on this. We just wanted to get her on the record about this controversy happening right now, but we know there's a broader conversation and to be had. And she said she is willing to come back yeah. and continue the conversation. So keep sending in those questions, and we're going to get to those at a later date. So, Avi, when was the last time, or friends, when was the last time you had fun? Our next guest, science journalist Catherine Price says it is time to prioritize fun and not the weekend TV binge you might be used to. True fun and playfulness have so many benefits for our mental and even physical health, no matter your age. It's time to start having some fun right now. And last week, we hosted a live event, our very first, with Catherine Price to talk about her book, The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. We learned a lot from that conversation. We met a lot of interesting people. Mm -hmm. Thank you, by the way. And we got a lot of great tips for making more room for fun in our lives. You said that we've cheapened the word fun because we use it for everything. So explain what true fun is and why we've been putting this label on everything that you say 
isn't probably really true fun. Sounds a little accusatory. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, you say. Break it down, break it down. Cherry was saying before we came up here that she's worried that now she's been having nothing but fake fun for the past. So I feel like there's this is a little loaded here. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think we use the word fun to describe anything that's vaguely enjoyable or anything we do with our leisure time. But that includes things like scrolling through social media or, you know, when you get together with a friend and you say that was so fun, we should do it again. But you don't necessarily mean that you really want to do it again. And uh, what I ended up doing is asking people on my mailing list if they would share with me memories from their own lives that they would categorize as having been, quote, so fun. That was my technical term for it. And I actually invite you all to think right now of an experience in your own life that would stand out to you as having been so fun. It doesn't need to be dramatic, but just like, oh, that was so fun. And what I did is I collected these stories. I've got thousands of them from people around the world. And I read through them, and I came up with a hypothesis of what I thought fun was. And I ran it by them, happy to say they agreed. And my conclusion is that what I consider to be true fun is the confluence of these three states. And I normally have a Venn diagram, so I will draw it with my hands for you. Uh, the playfulness. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I got it. We can each be a circle. <laughs> playfulness, connection, and flow. And where the three of us overlap, that is where I consider the true fun to be. And just to quickly clarify what I mean by those, because adults in particular freak out with playfulness. I don't know if anyone is like feeling a little bit tense just at that word, you don't play, you're an adult. Um, playfulness just refers to your attitude. Like You don't have to play charades. You don't have to act like a kid necessarily. You don't have to be silly. You can be. It's just about not taking yourself too seriously, like not taking the world too seriously, finding ways to laugh. And then connection was very interesting when I looked at people's stories because most of them, vast majority, like more than 95%, had other people in them, even if the people telling the stories were introverts. So there seems to be this aspect of interaction and human connection, sometimes with a dog, but normally with a person that happens. And then flow, as you all may know, is when you're actively engaged and present in what you're doing to the point where you lose track of time. But not like losing track of time like Netflix binging, but rather... <laughs> Active engagement, like being in a really stimulating conversation or, you know, an athlete playing a game or a musician playing a piece of music are the quintessential examples. It's when you're in the zone. Um, anyway, so all three of those states are wonderful for you on their own. But when you get to that center of the Venn diagram, somewhere over here, that's where I think that you have true fun. Flow. Mm. That was the one that was the hardest for me to wrap my mind around because it seems like as soon as you acknowledge flow, flow is gone. <laughs> <laughs> because then you are aware of the time and you are, you can't be aware of flow and be in flow. I'm trying to understand flow without like losing it in the wind. So you're like chasing the flow. And I'm chasing like running the flow. Away. Yeah. I hear what you're saying because if you are totally engaged in something, then you're not having that external perspective of what is happening. I think it's possible though to quickly note to yourself, whoa, oh, I'm actually in flow and then get back into it. But it's not necessary either. You could be you could just realize afterwards, oh, wow, like, look at the time. Like, I play, one of my big sources of fun is playing music with friends, and I often look at the clock, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's already been four hours. Like, how did that possibly happen? Or I go to bed at 9.30, 10 most of the time, and I'm like, it's like midnight. What crazy person am I? Yeah. Yeah, I like to have dance parties, sometimes by myself. <laughs> and, um, you know, yeah. Anyway, I'll move on from there. That's fun to me. See, that is fun. fun and you lose time, you're sweating, 
you have on a crazy outfit. You're like, how did I get here? Um, but, Every day at Studio Two. <laughs> but yeah, I, I want to talk about because I you wrote a whole book about it, and it's like 300 pages. Uh, it's kind of long. And then I went. I have a, a library in my little office, and I had I realized I started looking through the books, and I have at least five or six books related to fun or joy, or something. How to be happy. And it's become a real thing. Like, how did we lose something that theoretically, getting into the flow, like Avi said, it should be, it seems like it should be easy. And yet we've kind of lost it. How did we get here to where now we have to read about it, study it, and figure <laughs> out how to find it again? You have to come and hear someone talk on stage about fun instead of just, we, but we were having it. fun out there and then we brought you in here to listen to us <laughs> talk about but it. But a lot of us have lo literally lost it. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a lot of reasons that it is harder to slip into this state of playful, connected flow. Yeah. I mean, everything feels very serious right now, so it almost feels irresponsible in some ways to be playful. And I would push back against that, and I can if you would like. But I also think that flow is one of the factors that's the most threatened because we're constantly distracted. And obviously I come in with a bias having written a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. But if you do think about the number one source of distraction for most of us these days, it is our phones. And it's the fact that we're never fully or very rarely fully present. I actually wanna thank all of you for not having your phones out right now. It's actually right. really remarkable. Because I often look out at conferences and talks and you can kind of see divided attention. Um, someone's phone drops, um, but you were putting it away. But I think that that really is a major problem is that we've kind of trained ourselves to be distractible and to be on call to these devices and then haven't realized that actually that's taking, out of, taking us out of our real life experiences and also preventing spontaneity from happening mm -hmm. because spontaneity is often present when you're having fun. You know, sometimes you, I often say fun is a feeling, it's not an activity because you can have activities that you enjoy, but we've all had experiences where you do something fun and something's off and it's just not fun. But you can also have experiences where it's never something you would have chosen and it ends up being really fun because there was something spontaneous or something magical about it. There's one example that comes to my mind of someone who told me he had a ton of fun when he got stuck in an airport waiting for a delayed flight, which is not an activity anyone would have chosen. But it was because as he put it, he connected with a fellow passenger and they started laughing about something and joking around and they waited for like two hours and had a great time. But it was in part because he had put out the signal that he was available for such an interaction because he wasn't looking down at his phone. Wonderful. And you have this thing called the delight practice <laughs> to try to, I, and I kind of like lead you to a space and an attitude where you can open the door for fun. Mm -hmm. Explain what that is. Because I, I do a gratitude journal and I talk about how much I'm grateful for and how great. And it works to, to brighten your spirits, but you've taken it a step further than that. Yes. So I read a book called The Book of Delights by the poet Ross Gay, who is wonderful. And the book is wonderful and I highly recommend it. He wrote an essay every day for a year about something that delighted him. And in it, he offers up this idea of noticing things that delight you. I mean, that is the practice that he's doing in the book. Just noticing things in your everyday life that spark delight. And it really doesn't matter what. It could be something that's beautiful. Many of my delights are absurd. Like I saw someone unicycling down the, <laughs> the parkway while playing a trumpet once, and that was delightful. And what you do when you notice something that's delightful, this will seem very silly, but you put a finger in the air and you say out loud, delight. And I always like to, because you're going to feel ridiculous, I think we should all practice that. And I'm going to count to three. I want you to put your fingers up in the air and say delight. Okay? I'm with you. All right. Thanks, Avi. One, two, three. Delight. delight. It felt How good. <laughs> that wasn't bad. How delightful was that? That wasn't I mean, bad, yeah. Right? So uh, 
you did it. First of all, like, so you got the first one out of the way, but also there's actually scientific evidence behind the idea that when you make a point to notice the positive things in your everyday life and you name those things, you say delight, and you say the name out loud, and you accompany it with a physical gesture, it's all a form of a practice known as savoring, which is basically appreciating life's positive moments. And that's very important because our brains are naturally tuned into negative. It's an evolutionary strategy that protects us because something that's negative or scary or threatening might actually cause a physical threat to us. So we're naturally gonna look at the negative news headlines, right? It actually takes training to turn yourself towards the positive and delight practices are one way to do that. And they become even more powerful if you share them with other people. So there's lots of ways to do that. But one thing I do in my family is we actually have a delight jar that we have an eight-year-old, but you don't even need a kid for this. You can do this with just grown-ups. And we write little things on scraps of paper that delight us, and we just have a jar of delights. And we share them with each other, and we, you know, if you're feeling down, you can look and remember a delight. Um, but you can also do that with your phone and do something good with technology and have delight chains with friends or family members and just text people you know, photos or little things that delight you and have them text them back to you. It's really... It's really wonderful. So I think that's a really accessible way to tap into the playfulness aspect and to get you to be more present in your everyday life and start to notice these little moments of beauty and absurdity. I love that. So if you're having a dance party by yourself or delight. putting your finger in the air <laughs> and shouting delight, you might feel a little self-conscious. A little, yeah. And you write that true fun um, involves being free from self-criticism and mm -hmm. judgment. I'll be honest, that's hard for me. I'm getting that sense. <laughs> so uh, how do I get over that? That's a great question. <laughs> um, just like in five minutes, if you could, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we just switched to a therapeutic relationship. <laughs> well, I think that there is an aspect of not taking yourself too seriously and like trying deliberately to find ways to laugh instead of feeling self-conscious. Because if you can laugh at yourself, then no one else is going to laugh at you. Like one example from my own life is that I, um, you know, when I'm at the gym, I use the rowing machine a lot and it's really boring and I live very close to the Schoolgirl and so at some point I was like, I should learn how to row. I should actually learn how to row. Is anyone rowing here? Okay, so you know how yeah, thin those boats right. are. The boats are like this thin, like you have to balance on top of it and you have to keep moving at all times, otherwise you will fall into the Schoolgirl and that oh, happened to me. It, I, will, I will say it was my coach's fault because he different, gave me different oars that day and it was raining, but there was a moment where I realized there was nothing I could do to stop it, but I was tumbling into the Google. And <laughs> I swear the, the quote that I said, like the literal quote that I said when I emerged, I said that didn't taste as bad as I thought it would. <laughs> and you guys get this, you're from Philly. And, uh, and then I was really worried I'd gotten hepatitis just from falling in. And my coach was like, it's probably tetanus. But my point being, <laughs> I didn't get either of those things. The second thing I said was, you have to take a picture of this so I can show it to my husband. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that me, I as well, there's a time in my life where I wouldn't have found that funny, and I certainly would not then have put it on our holiday card, which I did, um, because I would have felt like I'd failed, or I would have felt like, well, you're not supposed to fall into the school, and like, that's embarrassing. And I was really happy to realize, oh, I guess I've reached a point where I, in most cases, am able to laugh it off, because like, you know, it's just, it's just kind of funny. Like, what? There's nothing bad or serious about that. I really think it's important for us to try not to take ourselves too seriously and to try to help other people not take themselves too seriously. Not taking ourselves too seriously. Good advice from science journalist Catherine Price. I Coming live by up. that. You do? <laughs> by the way, yeah, I do. So. Okay, that's, that's good information. To have. That's good <laughs> intel. Um, coming up, we're going to hear from the audience, and we want you to chime in, too. What do you do for fun. Mm. Do you have thoughts on fun? Deep philosophical thoughts on fun? And true fun, not and fake true fun. true fun, not fake fun, folks. Email us, studio2 
at whyy.org while you listen to this thematically appropriate music. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. I knew that I would not. So good. So good. I got a year. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Erend, having a delightful time mm-hmm. here at Studio Two. We're going to continue our conversation now with science journalist Catherine Price about her book, The Power of Fun, and how to have more of it. She joined us last week in front of a live studio audience. And you said that we have to make fun a priority. Yes. We, because a lot of us get caught up and we're just so busy and we don't think about it and then we haven't had fun in a long time. So how do we prioritize fun and what are some of the benefits of having more fun in our lives? More reasons you should have dance parties. I can yeah. give you lots of those. Yeah. Well, I think just to back up, as I was alluding to before, I think a lot of us tend to think that fun is frivolous or irresponsible. Yeah. So the first thing is to kind of investigate that and question why that is. I think a lot of us feel this responsibility, quote, to just focus entirely on negative anxiety producing things because it feels like what a responsible citizen would do. And I do think it's important to stay, you know, in tune with the news. Don't stop listening to the radio. Um, right? That's not what my message is. But also ask yourself, how much control do you really have over that? What do you have control over? And then what do you need to do for yourself to give yourself the energy you need to be a positive force in the world? And you do need to take care of yourself. And I think one of the things, well, there's many things that fun does. But if you look into the research on those three components, playfulness and connection and flow, they're all very good for us, not just on an emotional level, but also on a physical level. In other words, as you probably know, anything that emotionally stresses you out over time will spike your cortisol levels and will actually increase your health risks for a whole host of long-term diseases. And that's because cortisol is there to help you run away from a physical threat. So it does stuff like spike your heart rate and your blood pressure and your blood sugar. Great if you're running away from something really bad over time, like increases your risk of, you know, type 2 diabetes and also heart attacks, stroke, all sorts of stuff. Um, Social isolation is also really bad for us because it does the same thing. Like the risks of social isolation and loneliness are comparable to those of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is truly, I mean, mind-blowing. My point being, fun is a state in which you're relaxed and you're also socially connected. So that alone, to me, is something that makes it worth prioritizing because it's good for you physically. But if you think about some other things, it's energizing, as I was talking about. It boosts your resilience. Like if you think back on the early days of the pandemic when everything was so dark and so scary and we couldn't see each other and we didn't know what was happening, and if there were any kind of rituals or things you did that stand out to you as these bright spots that helped you emotionally weather that time, like remember Zoom happy hours being like a fun thing? But I, I'm willing to bet that there was an element of fun in those things. Yeah. You know? And then, I mean, other things that unites us. Like the, when I do talks, I often show these pictures of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu together. They had such a joyful friendship. They're actually the feature of a documentary called Mission Joy that I highly recommend. They were able to find so much joy despite both of their traumatic backgrounds. And they were just examples of how when you're having fun together, it just erases differences. Like they were different, you know, nationalities, races, like religions. They found this ability to connect with each other. 
So I think we kind of lose sight of the fact that fun, by this definition, actually is a very unifying force that helps us connect with our sense of hum humanity, which I think is something we desperately need right now when we live in such polarized times. So, I mean, I can go on, but I truly believe that fun is anything but frivolous. It's actually essential. Yeah, and before we started the show, you mentioned the word fun dimension. <laughs> I don't know if that's the word. Fun-tervention. Fun-tervention. Fun like an intervention. So making, because I want you to give people an example, because that's, uh, I feel like, an interventional way is to sort of check what you're allowing into your space. I'm, in, I'm into meditation, and that being mindful about the information you take in, um, the words you say to yourself, all those things. And so I would assume, first of all, explain what a fun-tervention is, <laughs> and then how do we do one to make sure that we're allowing ourselves the space, time, and the attitude um, to, to have more fun in our lives. Well, you do need to make the space and time for it. So I would say one of the first things, if you're thinking, I, I sounds great, I'd love to have more fun, but I don't have time and I'm totally overwhelmed, I would say you probably are totally overwhelmed and feel like you don't have time. I would also say before the pandemic, the average person was spending four hours a day on their phones, just their phones, like not their other screens. That's a quarter of your waking life if you're up for 16 hours a day, 60 full days a year. And so you probably do have more time than you realize, but a lot of it is being spent unintentionally, if I say that in a gentle way as possible, as opposed to totally wasted. Um, so I would ask yourself, I ask myself this question, what's something you say you want to do but supposedly don't have time for? And that's how I ended up taking that guitar class that led me to write this book, because you probably do have time. But I'd also say it's really important to say no to stuff. You know, I think that we have really accumulated obligations in the same way that we accumulate physical possessions. And we kind of need to like Marie Kondo our obligations and ask <laughs> ourselves, yeah, what sparks joy, but what's also necessary? What can you possibly get rid of? I used to volunteer on my daughter's preschool board and it took a fair amount of time and I wasn't really finding that fulfilling. And I also realized, I think we take ourselves a little bit too, we think we're too important, you know? And I was like, you know what? This school can function without me. I am not, <laughs> it's fine. It's doing fine right now. And so I ended up, I don't normally quit things, but I quit it. And I ended up with four hours or more free, you know, every couple of weeks. And I actually used that to start to take drum lessons, which is a major source of joy and fun for me. So I think each of us can ask ourselves, is there something you could let go of? Even like a social obligation that maybe was fun at some point, like a book club or a regular gathering and say, is this still energizing me? What is the feeling I get after these interactions? So I think that's one thing to do. My general suggestion in a big picture sense is to think about those three ingredients, playfulness, connection, and flow, and how you can do more of those. But I'd also say that you can sort of try to engineer fun, like invite it in. You're not going to be able to force it. Everyone's been in a forced fun situation. Those are not fun. Have most fun. Of the time. Have fun. Have fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I talked about being open to spontaneity, which is one side of it. That's kind of like the magical aspect of fun that you can't really control. You just have to open your, like set the scene, like light the candles for fun. But you can also make it more likely to occur if you can actually figure out what tends to lead to fun for you. And I think about these things as fun magnets, is a term I came up with. And fun magnets are activities, people, or settings that often lead to fun to you, for you personally. And I know I said that fun is a feeling and not an activity, and I stand by it, but you know, we all do have certain activities that typically lead to fun for us more than others. And importantly, we have individual fun magnets. Mine are not the same as yours, and they're not the same as my husband's. You know, yours are not the same as your best friends in all cases. And I think it can be very useful in a relationship setting to investigate your respective fun magnets. Like as a personal example, playing music, as you may have gathered by now, is a major fun magnet for me. 
playing music with other people. It's not the same if I do it alone, as a side note. My husband loves camping trips. I have type 1 diabetes, and I like beds. And so it's not necessarily, like, my number one fun magnet. And what we've really, but then we share fun magnets too, which is why we're married. And uh, it's been really helpful to identify our respective fun magnets and give each other space for those. And then also to figure out where we have overlaps. So my point being, if you can figure out what some of your fun magnets are, and I encourage you, have a conversation with a friend or a loved one, because it's fun to talk about to begin with, and then you'll learn about them. And then that you can actually carve out time for in your schedule. Like you don't want to be like, I'm going to have fun on Saturday night, right? Like that's... It's not gonna. Maybe it'll happen. Put it on my Outlook calendar. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, if it's an Outlook, it's definitely From not gonna. Ten be fun. to two. <laughs> That's yeah, believe I that. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, but you can say, I know that whatever for me, like playing music with my friends, that's a fun magnet, so I can prioritize it. So to answer your question, it sounds so obvious that you should prioritize things you enjoy, but sometimes we need to say the things that are obvious because we forget them, and, and fun will never be at the top of the priority list unless we speak up for it. We're pretty good about creating fun for our kids or sometimes for our friends, but we're not as good as creating, at creating fun for ourselves as adults. And it's so important because you actually will be better at all your roles in your life, not just for yourself, but for the other people in your life if you are having enough fun. I love I it. Accept. Yes. Um, so do we want to do some questions from the questions. audience? Yeah. So, so if have you have microphone. questions, I think you have to <laughs> put your microphone. inhibitions aside and step up to the microphone in the center there. Thanks for coming up. Oh, thanks, thanks for hosting this uh, studio, too. You're fantastic. Your voices match your faces, and you, you obviously have the great radio voices. So I have a question for something that I really enjoy. the first enjoyed. person that's ever complimented my looks. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, I was going to say, now you're having fun. Now I'm having fun. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> and say, make sure you say your name. Oh, my name is Jim Clark. W-H-Y-Y, thank you so much for hosting this. This is really cool. Um, I, I, I need an idea from you for something I'm doing that I'm having a lot of fun with, but I don't have a next step. I have 700 letters from friends of mine from the 1970s when I was a young adult. I just kept all my letters, had a whole lot of friends. Now I'm sending them back their letters one at a time. They're little time capsules. But I'm take, before I mail them, snail mail a copy of their letter, I email them a multiple choice test to see what they remember about the letter. One answer is correct. The second answer is possibility, and third and fourth answers are just really stupid, fun things. Like, you remember when we were at the Art Museum in 1972 and the Rocky statue was there? It wasn't there. <laughs> what they don't know is I also hide an answer key in the multiple choice test. Only one out of a dozen people have figured that out. So what's my next step? I'm having fun with this. <laughs> I want to do something more. Doesn't I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> this is already incredible. Wow. Um, that's a lot. That's a, yes, first of all, like, congratulations, because you're Thank the you. fun person. That's a lot right of letters, too. Right there. That's an untoppable question. I don't know. I can't. Do you? I have no answer. I feel like there's something in person you could do with this or, or something where they, maybe you get them to do it back to you. Turn oh, the tables. Idea. Good idea. Because they might, they might have some ideas. Revenge, really. right? Revenge, yes. Strike back, yes. right? Fun right. revenge. That's great. Thank, <laughs> Thank you so much. much. Keep it up, though. Thank That's fantastic. That's always fun. That. Thank you. 700 letters. Wow. Any other questions before we... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, come on up. Hello. Hello. My name is Stephanie. Um, my question is, though, for Catherine, is there a such thing as too much fun? And Ooh. where is that line... You know, or how do we recognize we've reached that line? 
Great question. I think it depends on how you're defining fun. So I think if they go by the colloquial way that we talk about fun, and you think about fun as like happy hours or fun where you really are shirking your responsibilities and you're doing something, you know, irresponsible or then you could go too far. If you're going to get arrested, probably a sign. <laughs> like, that's not good. Or you're doing something that would betray people's trust or something like that. So I think that in that sense, yes, you, you could have too much. I think in the sense of it being playful, connected flow, you would have a hard time having too much of it. I could see you getting kind of, not you personally, you mm. seem like you've got a nice balance, but um, I could see it becoming like an obsession where you suddenly have difficulty tolerating when life isn't as stimulating and as joyful as this true fun is, you know? But I think that if you stick with the definition of playful, connected flow, it's a really nourishing and energizing and positive state. So for me personally, I think the more often I can be in that state, the better off I'll be both emotionally and physically. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Julie Powers. Thank you so much for putting this together. This is really fantastic. Thanks to my friend for bringing me. Um, I am a mom of three teenagers. Gulp. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, hearing you talk about, you know, creating opportunities that, you know, lend themselves to, to those three any suggestions on how to create opportunities for my kids to do that together and, and with me? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's like how to create fun when trying to create fun for other people makes them hate you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, I think that that is, opens up the very big question of how to deal with kids and phones, and that's like a whole separate conversation. But I will say that I often recommend that people start with themselves and actually asking your kids, first of all, blame me, blame all of us that you came to this thing and we talked about this stuff and this is why you're going to make them have this conversation because you've been reflecting on phones and how it's impacting us and your sources of true fun and you want to actually learn from them, like what do they feel about how you are on your phone or like are you having fun? I mean, basically turn it on you for a bit. Um, I think that can be a way to open a conversation that feels less finger-waggy than it often would if it's like, you guys are spending too much time on your phone. We need to put those away so that we can have fun together. That's like, ah! Um, But I also think having routines and rituals as a family can be very helpful there, where the whole family establishes that you have some no-phone zones, like kind of like the quiet car in Amtrak, like, for example, at the dining room table. I truly believe no one should have the phone out at the dining room table, but including the parents. Right, because you can't be checking your work email and then being mad at your teenager for being on social media or whatever's happening. So I think that establishing that and then investigating the resistance, like it's interesting if there's resistance to that, because why is that such a hard idea to put devices away for that time? Um, I also think it's very important to use some of the time to brainstorm things you actually want to do, like actually talk about what are your fun magnets, like what are your fun magnets, what are your kids' fun magnets, and use whatever terminology you want there. But with the goal of understanding that and then actually figuring out ways to support each other, it is a process. Like, it does take commitment and a process. I would also say that there happens to be an upcoming event you might want to participate in, which is the Global Day of Unplugging, which is uh, March 1st to 2nd this year. It's the first weekend in March. And it's basically like a global movement and invitation to take a 24-hour break from technology. So in that case, they have like listings on their site of things going on during the day of unplugging around the world that you could participate in. But the broader idea is that you do want to have these alternatives that sound fun to the people in your family. And maybe you rotate who gets to pick it. And maybe it does start as forced fun at first, where you're like, no, we're going to do something together on Saturdays. And they're like, ugh, right? But like, you do it, and it does actually end up being kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And then you just repeat it 
And over time, that in resistance can build into a begrudging, you know, appreciation for what you've done. Yeah, but I think it's worth committing to. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Okay. I lucked out. <laughs> Hi, my name's Walter McDonough. I'm a Studio Two listener, so I want to thank WHYY for inviting me and everyone to this event, and I've really enjoyed it. And and Catherine, I've really uh, enjoyed what you had to say tonight. I learned a lot. I'll share much of it with my wife who couldn't make it today. But what I'd really like to know, and, and maybe you could share with us, uh, a little bit about your background and your training and research and how you developed an expertise in this field. <laughs> you're like, who the heck are you? <laughs> Why should we trust what you're saying? So I did not start writing about technology. I, I just wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. Really practical career choice. Uh, I highly recommend. Um, and I ended up going to journalism school and Michael Pollan was one of my mentors, who's a food writer, and he's a lovely person, and he's an amazing teacher. And then before I went to journalism school when I was 22, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in college, my senior year of college. Previously didn't have any real interest in science or health or, I mean, maybe I had like a, you know, I wanted to be healthy, but it wasn't like a thing. And because I was then forced to pay attention to my body and my health literally every hour of the day, like every time I eat, like I'm, I mean, that's why there's juice up here. So my blood sugar was going low before this. Now I know it's going high because I had some of those pastries to stave off the low blood sugar. Mm -hmm. It's a constant thing. But my point being, I turned, I like to turn my personal issues into professional projects as kind of a mantra for my life. And so I got very interested in endocrinology and medicine and nutrition. I actually host a medical podcast for New York Presbyterian now where I interview doctors about their their research, totally separate from fun. So I have that side. Again, I told you wow. I'm a dork. But really curious about how our behaviors and our environments affect us physically. And then when I was in journalism school, it was in California, in Berkeley, when there's a lot of work in positive psychology, the study of what makes us thrive as opposed to just what makes us feel bad. And so I started writing a lot about gratitude and about positive psychology, got into that. But I basically followed my curiosity um, and have followed what one of my professors in college called creative drift, which is the idea of doing your absolute best at whatever you're doing in the moment and trusting that new things will open up as a result of that. And thankfully that has turned out to be true. So anyway, long story short, I ended up writing a book um, called Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food. And that was like history, sweeping history of nutrition. Whoops, that took three years. <laughs> and then I got involved in the technology stuff because I'd had my daughter and I had this moment where I was up with her and I noticed that she was looking up at me and I was looking down at my phone shopping for old doorknobs on eBay. I live in a Victorian house. You guys get it? You're from Philly. You've got to have good door hardware. But I was like, I don't want to be living this way. I don't want this to be her impression of a human relationship. That's why I wrote How to Break Up with Your Phone because I couldn't find any practical evidence-backed advice of what to do. And then, as I've told you guys, that then opened the door to having more time that led to guitar to writing fun. So it's really curiosity and then, I don't know, I'm just really interested in getting to the bottom of things and understanding the why and then also trying to make changes and help other people um, live as fully as they can too. I love it. And as we wrap up, um, last question to you would be, if there's one thing people can take away oh God. to add fun to their life, what would that be? I think the easiest thing is to do that delight. Promise me you'll do the delight thing and promise me that you will look into this global day of unplugging thing and find something fun to do during that time. I'm sure I'm going to think about like six ideas as soon as we walk off this stage. But since we talked about those things and have a conversation about your fun magnets with someone you care about, that's like six Thank you. I'm sorry. And this, friends, <laughs> Catherine Price, author of The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive 
again. Beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. For being a part of our first live <laughs> Studio 2. Avi, did you have fun? That conversation was a delight. Delight, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> And both of us are like laughing, holding our fingers up <laughs> in the air. Straight there. Delight. You know, listening back to this, do you have a fun magnet? I think I realized what one of my big fun magnets is. Uh, but it's kind of basic and lame. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I should share it take, anyways. Okay. Don't take yourself too seriously, okay. okay? Just going out to dinner. I got to do that you twice. You are kind of like a foodie. Twice this weekend, which I rarely get to do. Mm-hmm. And I just have so much fun and I'm so present. When I'm out to dinner with my wife, with friends, and I really do feel like I'm in flow. By the way, I've been trying to get Avi to do a dining El Desco um, tweet (laughs) every day because he has the best lunches. (laughs) Mine kind of suck, but that is, I can see that. That is definitely. I mean, I agree. Your lunches are a little. Yeah. (laughs) That's not your fun magnet. My fun magnet is dancing. I I literally love to dance. And I want to say shout out. Thank you to everybody who sent us emails today telling us what they love to do. Morgan sent an email. She also loves to dance. Um, Or I say they love to dance. Uh, Morgan says, I have been social dancing for about two decades and it's been one of the most joyous things I've ever done in my life. Mm. My spouse and I provide classes for the community. We strive to bring joy, share the culture of Lindy Hop, a dance born out of Harlem and connect people with each other that's beautiful I, I need to figure out what this lindy hop is and see if i can do it yeah i think it dates back to the 20s i think that the sounds lindy like hop. fun that does sound like a lot of fun mm-hmm. um joyce does tai chi in the park Ooh. and says talk about flow i like it and peter does the drum circle that's right that's i right. would not be a drum circle person but i really wish i got a lot of fun out of it because when i see people doing a drum circle they just feel like they're it's like pure bliss Pure bliss. Well, I absolutely love it. And you know what, Studio? Doing, uh, I say Studio. You know what, Avi? (laughs) Doing Studio 2 today with you, and I'm holding my finger up. It was a delight. A delight. Um, We had fun with the people who helped us make the show today. Our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes, Diana Martinez, our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I am Avi Wolf-Manerant. And I am Cherry Gregg. I'm wishing you a delightful day. Delight. Delight for all. 